Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 172, The Whiskey Rebellion. Last time out, we brought events up to the summer of 1794. It was a very tense situation around the country. In Europe, France's new republic had embarked upon a reign of terror, a stance some of the more democratic republicans thought America should follow. War was engulfing Europe, and that was causing a strain on Atlantic trade and on the American frontier. There were fears of Indian attack, British and Spanish invasions, and a separatist movement in Kentucky based on a need for trading access to the Mississippi. And then there was whiskey. The federal government had made a number of concessions on the whiskey excise, but was ideologically committed to enforcing the excise, particularly in a location as close to the national capital as western Pennsylvania. There, the only reason the excise had not been more intently pursued was due to more pressing concerns, such as the revolution and war in Europe, and everything else I've just said. This led to a few key misunderstandings. The frontiersmen had formed two separate groups, one based in a Whiggish political tradition, which made petitions to government and had correspondence committees. These were primarily the elites. And then there was a more violent movement, where a community would attack any individual who tried to collect the excise. Most of this, again, centred on Western Pennsylvania, because other areas in the South, such as the frontiers of Virginia and North Carolina, or in Kentucky, nobody would attempt to collect the tax. These were quite separate movements, but both, to some degree, thought they'd been successful because the Pennsylvania state government, and then the federal government, had not more vigorously attempted to collect the taxes. In reality, both of these tactics thoroughly annoyed the federal government, especially Washington, but especially Hamilton. Hamilton had pushed for more extreme retaliation, but calmer heads, such as Randolph, had calmed things. This is the tense situation we're in in the summer of 1794. Now, let's watch it explode. Our story begins on May 31st, with the Pennsylvania District Attorney, William Rawl, taking his cues from Hamilton. Rawl summoned over 30 distillers from Western Pennsylvania to make a court appearance in August. Crucially, this was several days before Congress updated the law to allow for prosecution in the distillers' localities. The distillers were concerned about being tried in the East, thinking that a jury there would not understand local concerns, which made the tax unbearable, such as a lack of capital. On June 22nd, David Lennox, a US Marshal, set out to begin serving the writs. On July 14th, he stayed with Henry Brackenridge in Pittsburgh, where Lennox said he was relieved to have had no real issue on his journey yet. Brackenridge responded that it was only the tax collectors who the people opposed, not officers of the law. 
However, Lennox decided to ignore this advice, and he accepted an offer from John Neville to accompany him the next day. You should be well familiar with John Neville by now, who was either reporting on the activities of the frontiersmen incorrectly, or collecting the taxes himself. Needless to say, Neville was not a popular figure. And Lennox's experience of travelling with him was completely different to when he travelled alone. They left Bower Hill on the morning of the 15th and set off into Allegheny County. They stopped off at four people in the morning. Lennox was taken aback by the hostility he received until they reached the house of the farmer William Miller at around noon. Miller later described how he felt at being interrupted to attend the Philadelphia District Court in August, saying, quote, I felt myself mad with passion. I thought $250 would ruin me, and to have to go to the federal court at Philadelphia would keep me from going to Kentucky this fall after I had sold my plantation and was getting ready. I felt my blood boil at seeing General Neville along to pilot the sheriff to my very door. End quote. Miller did not accept the summons and spoke harshly with Lennox. While the farmer and the marshal spoke, Neville noticed a group of between 30 and 40 men gathering down the lane. Lennox and Neville left Miller to see the crowd, which they found to be armed with pitchforks and muskets. It was the harvest, and these men had been working, intoxicated of course, in the fields, when someone ran over to them and told them that Neville was there with a federal sheriff, rounding up people to take back to Philadelphia. It's not exactly clear what happened here, accounts differ. I doubt the intoxication helped with this, but what seems to have happened is that the labourers realised that what they'd heard wasn't exactly true. Only summons were being issued, people weren't being carted off, so they let the two men pass. When they'd gone about 50 yards, a shot was fired. There were plenty of theories about what happened. Some think that the crowd shot at the two men in an attempt to harm them. This was the version pushed by Hamilton. But others think it may have been a warning, or shot in frustration in the air, or by one of the drunk labourers just venting. I've no idea which of these is true, and I'm not going to venture to guess. What we do know is that Lennox turned around on his horse, rebuked the men, they hurled back abuse, and the two men separated. Lennox travelled to Pittsburgh, Neville travelled to Bower Hill. Meanwhile, a local group of militia had gathered, heeding a call from Washington for people to fight the Indians. After they'd gathered, they'd heard the same rumour that the early group had and became enraged. They decided to capture the marshal, and based on what he reported, they would then decide what to do next. They gathered a group of guns, and 38 of them went to Bower Hill, thinking that Lennox had gone there with Level. At daybreak the next day, their leader, John Holcroft, gathered the force outside the place Neville was staying at. Neville asked who they were, and Holcroft, thinking he was talking to the marshal, responded they were friends from Washington County who'd come to guard him. Neville did not fall for this trick, instead telling them to stand back, and he shot at them, killing a man named Oliver Miller. The militia fired back. 
Neville then gave a signal, and his slaves, who had been in their quarters behind the crowd, opened fire. No more were killed, and none of Neville's slaves were harmed, but several of the militia fell wounded, and they retreated to a nearby fort, where their numbers swelled. The militia met and discussed what to do next. Hiring somebody to assassinate Neville was seriously considered, though the idea was ultimately rejected. This meeting was where the more respectable elements of the local society started to get involved, a notable change from previous events where any violent action had not involved the local elites. We have a report of one of the excise officers deciding to resign his commission at this point, realising he was not dealing with, to use his words, rabble. This group decided they would go back to Neville's residence the next day. This was what Neville expected, and he attempted to secure some help, appealing to judges, sheriffs, and the local militia. Most declined to help, but a major, James Kirkpatrick, and ten soldiers from Fort Pitt volunteered. And at 5pm the next day, so the 17th, a force of between 500 and 700 gathered and paraded outside Neville's residence, showing much greater organisation than the previous day. A representative of the protesters went to the house after half an hour of parading and requested the surrender of Neville and his resignation, along with a promise not to take up office under the excise again. But rather than meeting Neville, instead met with Major Kirkpatrick, who informed the representative that Neville was not home. He'd have been smuggled out of the mansion earlier in the day by Kirkpatrick. He offered a search of the house, but refused to evacuate the building before the search took place, understanding that the protesters intended to burn it to the ground. At this point, negotiations broke down. The militia encircled the building, around 60 or 70 metres away, and set fire to a slave cabin and one of the barns. The defenders held fire while they evacuated the rest of Neville's family. Once this was done, what is known as the Battle of Bower Hill began. During the skirmish, the commander of the militia thought he heard someone from the house attempting to parley. So, he stepped into open view and was instantly shot, stunning the militiamen. They believed that Kirkpatrick must have tricked him and shot him himself. Most of the buildings were put to the torch, aside from a few that the slaves requested be spared. When the heat grew too intense, the soldiers in the house saw that the game was up and finally surrendered. We have no reliable evidence concerning casualties, but it seems a minimum of two militiamen were killed, potentially a couple of others, with maybe one soldier inside the house who died after sustaining serious wounds. Kirkpatrick was captured, as was David Lennox, the US Marshal, who had been tracked down by several rebels, although Lennox managed to escape, floating downriver on a barge to avoid the roads. And now we get to the key question of the rebellion. The question that has been floating around in my head during the months I've spent with it. Now what? There's a darkly comic aspect to the series of improbable events that led to the Whiskey Rebellion. There were national actors and programmes such as 
such as Washington's federal perspective and Hamilton's financial plan. There were regional aspects, such as Pennsylvania temporarily hosting the federal government, putting it in the spotlight in a way that Kentucky wasn't, to global factors, setting the backdrop, such as the French Revolution leading to Americans fearing British and Spanish agitation on the frontiers, and ships from the Caribbean carrying yellow fever, to specifically local players, such as John Neville, whose actions had been the spark to begin the riots. All of these different factors played out on a group of people with very different experiences of the last decade, with very different expectations of what was about to happen, all placed by history into the same place. And when they asked themselves, now what? It became clear very quickly there wasn't a clear answer. Some saw this as a grand historical moment, a chance to break away from the United States and form a path of independence. Others only wanted Neville to resign. Judge Alexander Addison thought that the majority belonged to the latter rather than the former, writing, quote, Irritated by refusal, resistance and repulse, and too deeply engaged to retreat, in their frenzy they drew into their guilt all within reach of their terror and proceeded to the extremity of burning the house, end quote. This was a rash, emotional outburst, not an orchestrated conspiracy. This is where we're going to leave the narrative for this week, as the rebels try to work out where they would go from here. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.